you have a Bible, why don't you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, please. 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. The message is entitled, Living, Being Ready for Jesus Christ. Peter turned to the practical exhortation of living what one believes regarding the coming of Jesus and the ultimate desolation of all things, the end of the millennial, after the white throne judgment. This goes from verse 11 through 16. On Thursday night, in our New Year's message, I spoke to you out of chapter 3, verse 11 through 13, where Peter, by way of exhortation, gave three marks that are to be present in the life of a believer in view of the final Holocaust. And that message was entitled, Living Knowing Jesus is Coming. This is living being ready for Jesus. You can know he's coming, but are you ready for his coming? What a way to start the new year. And so let me read our text here, and we'll pick up the three points, verse 14 through 16. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot and uh, blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And so Peter here, building off verse 13, exhorts the believer to be doing three things as they are waiting for the day of the Lord. First, verse 14, the believer is to abide in Christ. Real simple. This is key, abiding in Christ. Second, in verse 15, the believer is to preach salvation through Christ. And thirdly, verse 16, the believer is to oppose false teaching about the coming of Christ. You see, your life and mine is to be all about Christ. It's all focused on Him. What a good message to be reminded right the first day of the year. Let's begin here with the believer is to abide in Christ in verse 14. Notice the Apostle Peter here based this conclusion on the future expectation of the believer. Listen to the words. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Peter comes to the logical and rational recognition of the confident and anticipating expectant hope of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, we know that will not happen till after the white throne judgment, but he's looking at very uh, a whole bunch of events. He's talking to a period of time as we'll, we'll go through here. The word therefore means moreover, being related to verse 11 through 13. This is a continuation indicating some more important truths. He just keeps piling one thing after another. The believer again is addressed by the word beloved, a term of endearment. This is the third time in this chapter that he's used this phrase in verse 1 and verse 8 and here again. Peter confirmed he was still speaking about the expectation of the eternal state. The context is still the same. The expectant hope is indicated by the phrase looking forward. The phrase means to be expectant, not only in thought, but in continual active Vigilance, being a participle present active. As you got in your car and you were driving to church, you were looking forward, not backwards. You had a destination. You knew you were going to be here. 
The word has been used for the coming of the day of God, the kingdom age, by Peter in chapter 3, verse 12. It's also use of the new heaven, the new earth, in chapter 3, verse 13. Looking forward, notice, is to these things. Underline that. It refers to verse 13, the eternal state, the new heaven and earth, where righteousness dwells. This is the millennial kingdom when Jesus will reign and we'll be reigning with him. The kingdom age will be given to Israel. All those who haven't accepted the mark of the beast during the great tribulation, they will enter the, the kingdom age to serve the Israel. The nations that didn't persecute the Jews will be allowed in Matthew 25. The day of the Lord, as you know, will begin the 70th week of Daniel. Tribulation and great tribulation. The church simultaneously will be raptured at the beginning of that seven uh, last years. As Russia attacks Israel, the rapture takes place. The day of the Lord begins. The Antichrist appears with a bow, no arrow, with a white horse, false peace. We were pretty close last year. We seem to have kind of a dissipation now. A little bit. A window time. The promise of a second coming is what the false teachers were denying, which would usher in the day of God or the kingdom age of uh, chapter 3 here, verse 4 and 12. So Peter has mentioned events, plural, from the second coming up to the eternal state. Remember, the day of the Lord begins, the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation, rapture happens, Russia attacks Israel, first three and a half years, false peace by the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation in the temple that he's going to build, great tribulation, he persecutes everything, the second coming, Armageddon, the kingdom age, white throne judgment, the eternal state. So you've got a period of time with all kinds of events in between. Now, notice still in 14, the apostle Peter declared the present demonstration of the future expectation of the believer. This is the believer's time. This is what's been going, is supposed to be going on in your heart and mind. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. I notice you're here this morning. You're not sleeping. A lot of people are getting over their hangover or waking up in jail or the hospital or the way we used to live. That you're here this morning, to me, means that you have this expectant hope. That your allegiance to Jesus Christ first. Notice Peter indicated the personal obligation of the believer in the relationship to Christ. The believer is a co-participant in salvation. You know it doesn't happen by accident. The phrase be diligent means to make haste, to exert oneself to action constantly. We're like salmons, we're swimming upstream. Any dead fish can float downstream. You gotta be alive to swim upstream. The noun form was used to cultivate Christian virtues to grow spiritually in chapter one, verse five. The verb form appears two other times in the letter, translated diligent in I will be careful in chapter 1, verse 10 and 15. We are to do all we can constantly to manifest proof and evidence of our faith. You sitting here is a witness to the people you know, the people that saw you walk in here, and the people that will see you walk out of here. 
What in the world are they doing the first day of the year? They're crazy. Now we're just saved. Our eyes have been opened. The proclamation is an imperative command, by the way, not an option, not a suggestion. The command is era's active believer who is looking for the new heaven and earth is to be exerting himself constantly, persevering. That warfare that goes on. Notice the specific of the command is to be found in him in peace. The pronoun him refers to Jesus Christ as we're waiting for him to come. I was born again in 1973. I'm still waiting. I'm not disappointed. I'm more fervent and more anxious now than ever before. But I know he's coming. The word peace, as you know, Irene, we get the name Irene from it. It means to be found in Jesus in tranquil state because of salvation. And now we're obedient to him. But the rule where has the idea of being joined together of something previously fractured. We were enemies of God. We were separated from God. We were fractured from the fellowship of God. And by a sacrifice that we've trusted, he's made us one and brings us peace because we've made peace with God. Romans 5, 1 and, and 2. And now we have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding for the difficult things of life. But first you've got to make peace with God, salvation, before you can have the peace of God for the situations of life. Notice, Peter indicated the personal responsibility of the believer to maintain their relationship with Jesus is to be without spot and blameless. We have a new capacity, ladies and gentlemen. The two words are related to the Old Testament sacrifice, as you know. The lamb would, be, uh, would take the place of, uh, of the sinner and the offering. It, the, the priest would look at it without spot, without blemish. The blood would be the covering, the atonement, the IOU of the true payment to come, Jesus Christ. The word kofar, to cover one's sin. The believer notices to be without spot also. It means free from censure. Irreproachable of any acquired defect. So the lamb went through both of those inspections by the priest. Now they're attributed to us as believers. Three other times it is used for the quality of life of the believer. In 1 Timothy 6.14 and in James 1.27. One time for Jesus, the Lamb of God in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. Notice the believer that is also to be blameless. It means without rebuke or unblameable, faultless of any inherent defect. That implies that we have a new nature, ladies and gentlemen. That means that though we still have the potential capacity to live as we used to, now we can say no to that sin nature and yield to the new nature to please God by His grace. This word is found one other time. Philippians 2.15 says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, last year at New Year's, if you got born again after that, you weren't sitting in church. You weren't trusting Jesus Christ. You weren't reading the Bible. Something happened to you. A transformation came. The false teachers were spots and blemishes in their midst. He uses the same word in 2 Peter 2.13. Big contrast there. A different form is used again for Jesus, for the Lamb of God. Same words in 1 Peter 1.19 as I said. Now, 
Notice the believer in all reality is not sinless and is not perfect. And we will sin at times. We will even transgress willfully. And then we are to get right with God to maintain that fellowship. In 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I write these things to you that you do not practice sin, but when you stumble and fall, you have Jesus Christ, the righteous, the lawyer for the defense, an advocate. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So we don't use grace as a license to sin. But when we've missed the mark, we have the lawyer for the defense. He's a weird lawyer, though. You must plead guilty. There's nobody innocent. If you acknowledge your sin, he can get you off. If you try to justify, explain, or excuse your sin, he doesn't even listen to you. Wow. That's a great lawyer. We acknowledge our sin. We confess our sin. We receive forgiveness. We abandon our sin. And so we walk by the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ, blameless and without spot. By his grace. He sees us as the Father sees him. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew seven twenty four to 25. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. There's the focus. Does them. I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descends, the floods came, the winds blew, and the heat, uh, the beat on the house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Jesus is not talking about salvation. He's talking after salvation, the doer. Okay? Only the believer can be a doer. The non-believer can't be a doer. So knowing about Jesus, knowing Jesus is not enough. Are you a doer? Very important. Jesus taught his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the characteristics of a Christian. Not do attitudes, but be attitudes. Some people think if you preach the Sermon on the Mount and teach it to people, you'll get a better society. They can't do it. They're be attitudes. You'd be able to do that because you're a Christian. You don't do those things to become a Christian. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, you see yourself bankrupt to merit salvation. You trust Jesus Christ alone. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You mourn over your sinfulness, your bankruptcy to deserve anything. You, you mourn over your sin. Not like the world that repents and they have tears. They regret the consequence, not the sin. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, that means you see yourself as nothing. Just divide the word, me, ek. Simple. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. You have to be born again to, be, to thirst and hunger. That baby has to be born, come out of the womb before it starts feeding. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy less than we deserve. We know that God has given us less than we deserve, and we also know he's given us grace, what we don't deserve. If we demand law... God help all of us. We never make it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Only those that walk with God, depend upon Him, can be pure in heart. Daily walking with Him, abiding. Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So all of a sudden, now you're Jesus freak. Now your friends don't understand you. Now your parents think that you've betrayed the religion. Now you're on the opposite side. You used to be the funnest person at the party. 
Rab did. <laughs> Amazing. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake. Again, righteousness' sake, not your own stupidity. Sometimes people are just they're not good examples. They they force themselves on people so they get a racetrack around their eye because they're obnoxious. Simple. Blessed are you when you're reviled and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Not for your own conduct, but for his sake. These are believers. James puts it this way, James one twenty two. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. A hearer has greater responsibility. A doer makes it effective. It's doing. Now, the believer is not to trust their own righteousness, but that that is in Jesus Christ for the relationship completely. Paul the Apostle makes this very clear in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. As he counted all things as a pile of manure, all his accolades as rubbish completely for the excellence of righteousness of Jesus Christ, knowing um, the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means attaining the resurrection from the dead. Trusting only God. And you know what Paul, Paul was Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, Benjamin, uh, tribe of Benjamin, uh, circumcised the eighth day, uh, surpassed all his contemporaries, just smoked them. And yet he counts it as a pile of manure. Wow. The believer is not to depend on any works of the law to justify or maintain the relationship with God. You see, it's all what he has done because the law condemns me, the law accuses me, the law judges me. He says, I am guilty because the law demands perfection. No one, no one can be perfect all the time. You know, sometimes people say, you know, I almost hit the bullseye. It doesn't matter if you missed it by a hair. If you missed it, you missed it. No one is perfect. But there is a big difference between your life before Christ and after Christ. And it's a good reflection on the first day of the year to remember that. Listen to Paul. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage, the old life. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, he's talking to the Gentiles who were being deceived by the Judaizers, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Paul talks to them very, very strong. So the believer is to abide in Christ, waiting for the new heaven and earth. Abiding. That's the position of the believer. Secondly, he says, the believer is to preach salvation through Christ. So we're to be abiding constantly. Secondly, we are to preach salvation through Christ. Notice verse 15. The apostle Peter declared the believer is to be reaching sinners for Christ as they are waiting for Jesus. God doesn't save you just to come in and go out. God doesn't save you just to, to, to know you're going to heaven and to just hide. Listen to the words. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So Peter says believers are to take advantage of the time left in the age of grace. Therefore, knowing that the Lord is going to come, we make take great advantage of this time. It's a window time. It's closing. It's been 2,000 years. 
The admonition is the great commission here. The word think means to consider it to deem. Think through the process, the mind, based on the given information. Knowing all this, we can only come to this conclusion. He used it again three times in chapter 1, verse 13, and 2.13, and 3.9. Same word. The same word is used by Paul for all his accolades there in Philippians 3.7. I consider or account them as loss, thinking them through. The age of grace, as you know, will one day come to a close according to God's time. Last year finished, yesterday. Some people thought they were going to be alive January 1st of 2017. They died before midnight last night. Some young, some old, some healthy, some sick. Some say, well, I'll think about Jesus after the new year. Never came. Never came at all. Wow. When the fullness of the Gentile comes, the full number of people to be saved, the age of grace will close, Romans 11.25 says. God alone knows that time. The church is removed, and the blindness in part that has happened to Israel is removed from her, and God begins to deal with Israel once again. You have no idea what protection came over the United States in this election. As the incoming president says, the top priority is to be for Israel. Genesis 12, 3, God told Abraham, those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. If you do a study on nations' actions against Israel, every nation has taken actions against Israel. Every time bad things have happened to those nations, we have just received the protective hand of God. For how long? I don't know. But it's a big, big protection. Guaranteed. See, Peter says believers are to understand that the delay of the return of Jesus provides more time for sinners' salvation. How close are we to the coming? We don't know. The long-suffering is patient endurance and steadfast forbearance. Nobody will ever be able to blame God said that he's not patient. 120 years he waited in the days of Noah, knowing that only eight people were going to repent. How long would you have waited if you knew it? I wouldn't have waited. I smoked them. The different forms of the word is used for the patient endurance of God, not willing that any should perish in chapter 3, verse 9. It's used for the days of Noah in chapter 3, verse 20 of 1 Peter. The loving patience of God with sinners is the example and the model for believers for the salvation of sinners because we're to be like Christ. Certainly, I need to be your example. Certainly, you need to be my example. But our ultimate example is Jesus Christ. He being God, abandoned his, his throne, came down, took on flesh, and loved sinners and preached to them and died for them. He's our example. The word salvation means deliverance from the wrath of God, trusting Jesus for one's justification before him. It means a person's sins are forgiven and they're mentioned, never mentioned again and God doesn't remember them. See, you don't even have that ability to not remember anything. In fact, the things that you don't want to remember, you remember the most. The more you try to forget, the more you remember. God has the ability to forget your sins and never mention them. Aren't you glad? 
Amazing. Notice the Apostle Peter declared to the believer this was in accord with the writings of Paul. Peter was one with Paul. They were not at odds with each other as some people have interpreted. Listen to the words. As also our beloved brother Paul. So Peter identifies Paul with family love. The first word is beloved. Agapitos, a term of endearment. We've seen it already six times in the letter. Second word is brother, Adolphus, one of the, of the same family, born again of the same womb, literally from the root word. The third word is our. All are related. Regardless of who you are, what color you are, what background you are, where you were born, your economic standing, your social standing, you are my brother, you are my sister, if you've been born again. The world will divide you by class, by economics, by color, by everything else to pit you again once another and divide you and conquer you. We are Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. No difference. None whatsoever. Peter was in fellowship with Paul. They were one in Christ. Paul met with Peter when he fled from Damascus. He went up to Jerusalem and he ministered together. Both of them. Peter and Paul both agreed salvation was by grace through faith, not the law. In Acts 15, the first church council. Paul was given the ministry of the Gentiles. Peter was given the ministry to the Jews. But neither one of them neglected the other side if they had opportunity to preach. Paul rebuked Peter to the face as he was walking hypocritically at Antioch. But he didn't have no ill feelings towards Paul or vice versa. Some people would read that into this. No. Faith for the wounds of a friend. Deceit for the kisses of the enemy. Are you around people to tell you how great you are? Get some real friends. Yes, people. Are destructive people. Notice Peter was confirming what Paul himself had written to them about the salvation of sinners. Listen to the words. According to to the wisdom given to him has written to you. Paul is spoken highly by Peter here about his letters on salvation. That means Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, to mention a few. They were, very, they were known. This wisdom was divine, given to Paul by God, not from the learning that he received from Gamaliel, this is divine revelation. The word wisdom, Sophia, is the right understanding for application to get the best result. Information is just knowledge. Knowledge is information. But wisdom is having the proper understanding to be able to make the right decisions to get the best result. There's a lot of smart people, but very stupid in the way they think, the conclusions they come to. They don't make the best decision based on the information they have. See, salvation is God's divine revelation of salvation history by men inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the difference. The Bible is different. The Bible is not just a book. People say, oh, the Bible is just a book. Men just wrote it. Really? What other book has prophecy? Name me one. And for it to be fulfilled. Not one. People have attacked the scriptures. They're gone. The Bible's still here. Paul had written to these believers. They were familiar with his writings. They were students of the word of God. 
Peter was familiar with Paul's writings. The believers he was writing to could affirm that Peter and Paul were one in the gospel of salvation and the need to reach the lost. There's only one gospel, ladies and gentlemen. But if you looked at the church today, you would think there were many kinds of gospels because there's so much heresy and false teaching. We'll catch that in the last point. The greatest enemy is from within, not from outside. Judas Iscariot aren't outside, they're inside. Remember that. You remember, I've told you often that a herald was a person that was um, hired by the state or the king to make proclamations. And that herald was given the message. It wasn't his. The authority was vested to him. It wasn't his own. And he was not responsible for the response of the people, only responsible for the proclamation. The message I proclaim to you the first day of 2017 is not my own. It's God's revelation. It's his message. The authority is not my own. It's been vested to me by Jesus Christ. I'm not responsible for your response. I'm only responsible for the proclamation. You will be held responsible for your response. Whether you reject it, you obey it, God will deal with you. The person born again is so grateful to God for his long-suffering, having saved them. It's a real, real salvation experience. They know how lost they were and deceived. They understand the blindness of sin and pride causing the sinner to be so far away from God because we used to be there. You know, God loves the sinner having been saved themselves. So because we've experienced being lost and found, we can understand the greatness of God's love for us to save us, to forgive us. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. For this is a good and acceptable in the sight of um, of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God desires that all men and women come to the knowledge of the truth. But he also understands that not all will be saved because they will reject. You see, God doesn't force us to go to heaven. Every person has the right to go to hell. Now, last night I was watching Times Square. And I don't know who, I, I, I don't know names anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way out, so I don't know all the young Hip people that sing and all that, but they're singing uh, John Lennon's uh, I, I Imagine. What a blasphemous and contradictory song that denies reality in this world. Tell you what, John Lennon is not singing that in hell. No one in hell is singing that song because no one believes it. They know there is a hell, they know there is a heaven. Blood, sweat, and tears used to pray that too. He used to sing it. <laughs> I pray there's no heaven. I pray there's no hell. If you're back in the 60s, you know, blessed, sweat, and tears. <laughs> Everybody's a poet. But that's bad theology. The person born again understands four simple things about the truth about themselves and the salvation of the lost. First, every believer is salt to this earth and light to the world. Matthew 5.13. Salt causes thirst. Light dispels darkness. Are you light and salt? Very important. God's giving you another year. What will you do with it? Secondly, every believer has been given the ministry of reconciliation. You might not think that of yourself, but the Bible says yes. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Every one of us 
have that ministry to those who are lost. Wherever it may be, it can be our family, our friends, where we work, whatever it may be. Thirdly, every believer is to be constrained by the love of Christ for the lost. 2 Corinthians 5.14 In other words, it is the love of God that He demonstrated towards me and my understanding of that love that He died for me that is to constrain me to reach out to someone that was lost and is lost just like I used to be. Because I know what it is to be lost. I know what sin does to you. I know how the destruction, I know the pain, I know the stupidity of life without Christ. And therefore, it's the love of Christ that motivates and compels us to go out to minister the gospel. Fourthly, every believer is to understand the age of grace is a time of sowing God's word in the hearts of sinners. And here's the important factor. It will soon be over. It's a window time. Somebody says it's a window time. You know that it starts this big and it starts closing. And one day... It closes. That opportunity will never come again. Sometimes it's in their own life. The ultimate window time will be when Christ returns for his church. And so every believer is to understand this very, very clearly. Matthew 13, 1 through 9, this parable of the sower is very, very clear. Time to sow. So the believer is to preach salvation through Christ, waiting for the new heaven and earth. So we're not supposed to just sit around twiddling our thumbs, <laughs> being bored. Let me tell you, you think you, you're living in the world. Um, open your heart to the Lord. You'll find out what living is really all about. Notice the third thing that he says that we're to be doing is in verse 16. The believer is to oppose false teaching about the coming of Christ. Wow. Wow. As I said last year, if you weren't born again, you weren't sitting in church. Because you weren't looking for the coming of Christ. You didn't have Christ as your Lord. But now because you're born again, here you sit, clothed and sane. You're like the demon-possessed person, Agatera. <laughs> and people have taken notice of you. Your friends, your family, co-workers. And so Peter here, the apostle, declared these believers had been students of the coming of Jesus by the epistles of Paul. This is the context. Listen to the words. As also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Peter used the article here. All the epistles for Paul's writings. Very specific. This could mean he is thinking of a collection of writings or the existing letters at that time. The main point is Paul's letters were divine revelation written to the believers. So this is God's word. This is not just man-made letters. Notice Peter verified the divine content by the phrase speaking in them of these things. Some take this to mean the teaching of Paul in general, referring to all the things Peter has mentioned in his letter. Others take this to be specific, limited to the second coming context, judgment, the kingdom age, and the eternal order. I believe this latter one is the correct interpretation. 
Because the phrase these things simply means these matters. The context determines the subject. And it's also in the plural. Pointing back to the new heaven, the new earth, the second coming, the kingdom age, the white throne judgment all. So the grammar indicates it's plural. All these events. Notice Peter is not saying he did not understand the writings of Paul. It's amazing what people say over the pulpit about the Bible. Exegesis means you only pull out what's in the verse. Eisegesis means you insert and read into it. You corrupt it. Both had been taught by Christ for three and a half years. Peter, before the death of Christ. Paul, in Arabia after the resurrection of Christ. Both were apostles sent out to declare the gospel. Both had received divine revelation and recorded it. Paul wrote letters. Peter wrote letters too. This is his last one. This is his last will and testament, by the way. Like Paul's Second Timothy, last will and testament. Both were illuminated by the Holy Spirit of God. This is not just... Peter and Paul didn't write up and get up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'll write a letter today. No, God directed and guided him. I'm sure Peter wrote many other things that weren't scripture. But these were divine revelation to the churches. Notice Peter is simply declaring that some things given to Paul by divine wisdom were not easy to grasp. That's what he's saying. The word hard means difficult to perceive with the mind appearing only this time in the New Testament. They were not simple or basic thoughts at times, but intricate and complex sentences and subject that call for serious study. Have you found out as a Christian that you just can't read your Bible and grow and mature? Now, reading through the Bible, you should start today. You should read from here to December 31st of this year. You should read Genesis to Revelation. Just reading through for God to speak to your heart. You put the information in so God can use it. But you should be studying the Word of God. Take one book, tear it apart. Reading it over and over and over again. Dividing it up. Key words, key phrases. Made an outline of it. Ask questions. Who, when, where, how. That's different. Thinking through the process, the thought, the, the conclusions, all that goes on there. They took careful reading to observe, ponder, meditate, assimilate, accommodate, and even eliminate resulting in understanding. That takes time. As you know, it's taken time for us to get through the Bible, right? Years. We spend an entire year in a small epistle of four or five chapters. We tear it apart. Because we're so smart? No, because we're so dumb and we need to find out the things of God. That's why. But only the believer has this ability by the power of the Spirit of God. In other words, we're not saved because we're so smart. We're saved because the Holy Spirit has revealed to us our lostness and our need of salvation. And that Jesus died for our sins. And we agree with Him. And so we ask Him to forgive us. It's called repentance. And then He gives us His Spirit, His mind, and His Word. And we're able to depend upon Him to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Notice the Apostle Peter declared the false teachers had corrupted the scriptures. Easy to remember Second Peter, as I've told you often. Chapter 1, 
your heritage. Chapter 2, the heretic in the church. Chapter 3, the hope of his coming. Between your heritage and the second coming, you have a lot of heretics. That's how you remember Second Peter. Real simple. Listen to the words which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also of the rest of the scriptures, the Old Testament. When Peter's writing, the New Testament isn't all put together yet. They have the Old Testament. The word untaught means ignorant, unlearned, undisciplined, inhabitant thought, looking to themselves, lacking in moral qualities, and balanced judgment. That's the non-believer. The root word means to learn. As you know, a letter A before a word negates the word. You have theo, God. Atheist means no God. The word is found only this time in the New Testament. And the ignorance of these false teachers and apostate was not academic, not intellectual. There are people that are so brilliant. They dance circles around me intellectually. But they're lost. They have no ability to believe that God is. They have no ability that Jesus is God who died for their sins. And they're brilliant. It's spiritual knowledge. Wisdom that comes from above. Resulting in the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. As you sit there with your Bible reading, you've asked God to speak to your heart and he nails you. He directs you. He guides you. He comforts you. He strengthens you. Just you and him. The natural mind or apostate mind cannot understand the word of God. It's foolishness to him. Notice Peter described them as unstable refers to the conduct of those whose habits are not fully trained or established. When you think of someone unstable, it means that they, they aren't fixed, they aren't committed. They, 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 they're sporadic. They just, uh, you can't depend upon them. The word appears one of the time in the New Testament in this epistle. And the word is used for the new believer that are not yet grounded or anchored in the word of truth or that they're carnal in Second Peter 2.14 and they're enticed by those who are deceiving them false teachers if you are not in church and by the way you are the church not this building if you're not in church studying the word of God and growing and studying it yourself and reading through it then you're a candidate for deception Just a matter, it's not when it's, it's not a matter of if but when matter of time if the believer cannot be deceived, why write these letters? There's no need to write them. The very letters presuppose that believers can be deceived. You have the deceivers, the ones being deceived, and the ones fighting deception. Three groups. Peter described their conduct as perilous. Notice that. Underline that word. They distort the writings of Paul. The word twist means to turn away, to, 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 to torture literally. The idea is to pervert and to torture the language of Paul in a false sense to deceive the people. The agenda is to deceive. Even as a young man would deceive a young girl. A talker, a rapper. To lead her emotionally and deceive. 
That's what these false teachers do. This is the only appearance of the word in the New Testament. They could do this in different ways. He could be talking about allegorizing. In other words, you just make, you know, a nice poetical application of the take. Oh, you know, like Mother Hubbard went to the cover and the Hubbard and the, and the cupboard is your empty heart. And, you know, if you do this now, you make all the, oh, wow, you're really creative. Where, where, where's that at in the Bible? Or you spiritualize it. You just give it a different meaning. You just read into it. You take the text out of context. Or you plainly deny and refute it. You know, there's pastors that will stand behind the pulpit today in the emergent church. And I've heard some of them say, you know, if I was God, I would never put this verse here. I don't know why he did that. Well, you can pick it up with him on Judgment Day. <laughs> How arrogant that is. My Lord. And they, why you call yourself a Christian if you don't believe this is inerrant and infallible? What are you preaching? What are you teaching? You're a hireling. You're an enemy of God. Peter described the result of their deceptive distortion of false epistles to their own destruction. These individuals are bringing grave judgment on themselves. The word destruction means to destroy utterly. In our context, it means utter perishing and ruin, implying eternal misery in the lake of fire. And is used for Judas, the son of perdition, in John 17, 12. Peter has used the word five times for the false teachers and the ungodly in chapter 2, verse 1, two times, verse 2, verse 3, and in chapter 3, verse 7. Of the 20 times the word appears in the New Testament, 16 times it is used for eternal perdition. So this is not a small matter that we're touching here. The ungodly are those destitute of reverential awe towards God by their own choice and lifestyle. Chapter 2, verse 5, verse 6, 3, 7 again. It's a choice. When you were in the world, you made certain choices. I made choices. You chose to smoke. You chose to drink. You chose to get loaded. You chose to have sex. You chose to bash somebody in the mouth. You made a choice. And then there were consequences afterwards. Life's a matter of choices, aren't they? Well, God gives the same choices, except His choices are eternal. They're much more costlier. Jude puts it this way, Jude 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. The word there unnoticed is stealth, like the stealth bomber, undetected. Who long ago were marked out for their, this condemnation. Ungodly men who turned the grace of our Lord and our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. Notice Peter described also their habit of distorting the scriptures. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. And so the phrase the rest of the scriptures is placed on an equal level of Paul's epistles. And there are always people trying to say, well, the Bible, there's more than the Bible. How about these apocryphal books? And how about this and that? How about them? They're not scripture. And too many people in the church are bringing all these other writings and putting them on the same level as scripture. Listen, put your Bible here and stack all the other trash over here. There's a chasm, a great chasm between them. The phrase, the rest of the scriptures, is a phrase equal. Having the same origin as divine. No, they're not. Having the same authority as God. No, they're not. Calling Paul's epistles scripture, graphi. We get the word graphi from it where you write. Found 51 times in the New Testament. 
Listen to Paul. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, the Thessalonians, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. First Thessalonians 1.13. How many of you got saved reading your uh, science book? How many of you got convicted of your sin by your math book? Astrology? Kinesiology? P.E.? Only the word of God convicts you and saves you, ladies and gentlemen. God's divine word. The word rest means the remaining. The others of the same source and quality. Divine revelation and inspiration referring to the Old Testament scripture. So the letters that Paul is writing, they're equal to the Old Testament. They're all scripture. The gospels, the epistles. Both Testaments having mutual authority and inspiration, being inerrant and infallible in the original autographs. Absolutely. Again, listen to the words of Jesus. He's the ultimate authority. Matthew 5.18. Jesus said about the prophecy that will be fulfilled. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, Jesus is telling the absolute truth or he's an absolute liar. Which one is it? Those little markings over the letters, you know how to pronounce them? Those will be fulfilled. What's he saying? You can trust my word. Inerrant, infallible. Now, Fuller Seminary doesn't believe that. APU doesn't believe that. Most Christian colleges don't believe that. But God believes his own word as being infallible. Paul did. Peter did. We do. There are so many who, to the present day, have distorted the scriptures. You have the movement of health and wealth. Nab it and grab it. God help them. The seeker-friendly church movement, particularly Rick Warren and others. What's happened to the church? The emerging church movement, McLaren, Bell, and many others. Amazing. The motivational pep talks of Joel Osteen. But judgment. Jeremiah 23, 1 says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastors, says the Lord. Great judgment on pastors that distort the word of God, that deceive. Son of man, Ezekiel 34, 2 says, Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God to the shepherd, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherd feed the flock? Shepherds are to feed the flock of God, not fleece the flock of God. It's real simple. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is swan, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Matthew 23, 13. Whoa, what judgment. People have distorted certain doctrines that Paul and James are contradictory to each other. Book of Romans and James. Nonsense. Paul is speaking before the cross. James is speaking after the cross for justification. Calvinists have distorted predestination and election of a teaching of the chosen frozen, making God unjust and unloving. 
horrible. Preterists have denounced the book of Revelation as being totally fulfilled. Really? Wow. Some are teaching that there's no rapture anymore. All this inside the church. Listen, read Second Peter chapter 2, all of it. There'll be false teachers that have great followings. Many will follow them. The last decade has been such a falling away from the faith. Because people say, let's just love one another. Let's not fight over doctrine. No, let's fight. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. You need to know what to believe. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment, James 3, 1. Everything I have ever taught, I'm going to have to give an account for. You do not belong to me, but I'm responsible for you. You belong to Jesus Christ. The believer is to live for the word of God. He is to read and meditate upon the word day and night. He should be prosperous, have good success. Joshua 1.8. He is to study the word of God diligently, showing himself approved to God, rightly dividing the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15. He is to be like a Berean, examining to find out if those things are so. Acts 17.11. And he is to understand the scriptures that are inerrant and infallible. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures given by inspiration of God, literally expired from God, God breathed. Proper for doctrine, correction, instruction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Second Peter 1, 20-21, the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they were led by the Spirit of God, carried along, so that what you have in your lap, ladies and gentlemen, is God's inerrant, infallible word. Wow. The early church is a model for us. Listen to carefully. Acts 2, 42. And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. First doctrine. What is the emergent church and the church today saying? Oh, let's not fight over doctrine. What? That's like saying, let's, let's not breathe anymore. Let's not eat anymore. Really? Doctrine. Fellowship. Breaking the bread. And prayers. Four very basic important things, ladies and gentlemen. Top on the list is doctrine. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, doctrine, 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 doctrine. That's why people are teaching no doctrine, so they can deceive people. America has been dummied down by the educational system. The Trojan horse to America is the education, the academic world. The same is happening in the church. The believers to oppose false teaching about the coming of Christ, waiting for the new heaven, the new earth. How you doing? Are you opposing false teaching? I hope so. And so Peter has exhorted believers to be doing these three things as they're waiting for the new heaven, the new earth. The believers to abide in Christ, foundational. The believers to preach salvation through Christ, is essential. And the believers to oppose false teaching about the coming of Christ. Absolutely a qualifying mark of a believer. And so may God give us wisdom and go before us today. The first day of 2017. Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. And we pray for, Lord, everybody here and for those over the internet. And we pray you would continue to have your hand upon us as we look to you and your word. 
As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you see yourself in need of salvation, Christ your Savior, this is your prayer to Him, and He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me your brand new heart. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.